0: This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live audience on the 30th of May, 2018. The topic is Chronic Pain, A Meeting of Body and Mind. On the panel we have Associate Professor Toby Newton-John, Clinical Psychologist and Director of Research and Innovation. Dr. Milana Votrubeck, GP Pain Management Consultant. Sky Sadowkowski, Physiotherapist and Coordinator at the Pain Management Programme Prince of Wales Hospital, and Vicky, our lived experience representative. Chairing this evening is Dr. Varad Gordon.
1: Hello everyone, my name is Milana Botrabeck. I'm a GP first and foremost, but have branched out and become a fellow of the College of uh, the Faculty of Pain Medicine. And for my sins, with the College of GPs, I'm also the chair of their specific interests in uh, pain management. Um, And I have also another hat I wear in my spare time, and that is as an editor to a uh, pain-specific journal called Pain Medicine Today. And uh, I have been particularly interested in pain for a long time, and I'm pleased to be able to help patients Through their journey, and we've got somebody here who's going to give us a little bit of a story. So I think that's enough for me, and if you want anything else, I'm happy to answer.
2: Hi, my name's Vicky Hannon. I've lived with chronic pain for 20 years. I'm a former PE Health PD teacher. I've started running a business, so I do work full-time and I'm also a university tutor.
3: My name is Skye Sedekerski, I'm a physiotherapist with the um, pain department at Prince of Wales Hospital. Um, And it's kind of a bit of a a long and boring story as to how I came to work in pain management, but um, essentially I was working in an environment where I I was working with a lot of patients with persistent pain and and felt that the skills I had to, to work well with these patients were inadequate, Um, so I went on and did some further study in in pain management and found myself working in in a pain department.
0: That was another long (laughs) boring. (laughs)
3: Thank Um, you Toby.
0: (laughs) My name is Toby Newton-John. I'm a clinical psychologist. I work um, as a clinician still one day a week um, at North Shore Private Hospital Pain Clinic and the rest of my time for my sins is at UTS. uh, in the clinical psychology program there, so um, not related to pain specifically. Um, I, I got I, My interest in pain management was a very pragmatic one at the beginning. It was during the time of the RSI epidemic, so-called, in Australia. And as a uni student, I needed a job, and there was a research assistant job looking at um, psychological factors to do with RSI, so um, that sparked my interest in this area. Um, and I do quite a bit of research into the social aspects of chronic pain. So um, looking particularly at um, how families, relationships, partners, caregivers, influence people's coping with chronic pain. That's that's my particular area of interest.
4: Thank you so much. And I'm Vera Gordon. I'm a GP working in the northern beaches of Sydney, primarily working in mental health and also working here a day a week at Black Dog developing health professional education and facilitating health professional programs. So to kick off, Toby, I might get you just to start with um, helping us understand what is chronic pain? What do we mean when we say chronic pain?
0: Well, at one, at one level, the answer to that is a, is a fairly straightforward one. It's a, it's a durational definition. So pain that's persisted for three months or longer on a more or less daily basis is is considered to be a chronic pain problem. That, that uh, time duration uh, was six months up until maybe five or ten years ago. Um, but it was brought back to the three month mark when the research, the evidence seemed to be suggesting that uh, some of the changes to the central nervous system occur more rapidly than had been thought. So it was thought that it would take six months for uh, these centrally driven changes to take place, and it turns out they happen faster than had been anticipated. So so one definition of chronic pain is pain that's persisted uh, for more than three months. Uh, But there's other other, um, maybe more informative um, definitions, such as pain. So chronic pain is pain which no longer serves a purpose to the organism, is another definition of chronic pain. Um, definitions include pain um, which is no longer associated with ongoing tissue damage. Um, uh, so, so it's getting to the idea that chronic pain of course starts as an acute pain, starts as a, as a, as a purposeful, valuable, um, evolutionary, um, driven indicator to the organism that something's wrong and action needs to be taken. And then, for reasons which we still don't fully understand, it persists beyond that point to become something which is no longer of any, uh, any value. And that point's arbitrarily somewhat put it at three months. Interesting. For
4: the moment, do we have an idea of the magnitude
0: of the problem in uh, of chronic pain? Yeah. We certainly do. So, the, the sort of ballpark figure is about 20% of the adult population. Um, actually, in New South Wales, it's, we, the epidemiology has been done in this state. So one in five adults in this state um, will report some form of persistent pain, and of that group maybe five to ten percent will be significantly disabled to to varying degrees by that problem. Um, So we're talking about enormous numbers of people. Um, It is now back pain is the, is the, carries the greatest burden of, of global disability of any health condition in the world. so pain is a pain is a very very common, very prevalent, and and for some people, extremely disabling problem.
4: Mm. And staying Milan, with that Milana, um, do we know much about what happens to chronic pain through the ages as people are getting older?
1: Well, uh, unfortunately, um, the. Uh, The statistics look pretty poor for people who are my age and older. Um, They suggest that over 50% of um, the senior citizens are suffering from a pain that is significant, sufficient to actually impede or impair their functioning. And so that's quite a huge number. A lot of people in in the older age group, of course, won't complain. They actually keep it to themselves um, and just... You know, soldier on but it doesn't mean that they don't suffer and of course those who are near and dear to them suffer even more because they see them suffering so it is a, 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 con, well, a considerable problem and that it leads sometimes to the kind of consequences that make them chair bound. And so
4: Vicky perhaps this would be a good point for you to um, let us know a little bit about what's it like to have chronic pain what is the impact of that on your life? Um,
2: I suppose initially I could say the first the first 10 years, or the first five to 10 years, the first five years was a case of they were trying to diagnose what I had or didn't have or pigeonhole me. Um, and there was a number of areas. So I wasn't easily pigeonholed as to what was going on or what was causing. And that was due to... Um, because I was a PE teacher, I was a gymnast and I was over, overactive, I suppose you could say, and had numerous injuries, had numerous surgeries, and then it was also my background. So living with, so the first, I suppose, five years, ten years was the diagnosis, then the try and manage and things like that. So it had, it had quite an impact on everything in my life to the point of changing careers, family, the lot, So it impacted on everything so going from a very active and friends who in the PE sporting community so every weekend it was you know you're in the mixed touch team you're in whatever social charity as well and all the rest of it so it was basically seven days a week down to you can't get out of bed without knowing why. It has been difficult. But I think one of the good things is with my knowledge of being a PE teacher, I brought in a lot of skills that I was telling and teaching kids, do as I say, don't do as I do, and decided to start doing as I do. And I actually packed up and left Sydney and to pursue a totally different lifestyle.
4: i you for a lot of people, um, certainly in the early phases, there's a lot of looking for an answer, having lots of tests done, seeing lots of specialists. What was that like for you? Um,
2: that was... It was difficult. It was um, because it it was wrought with frustration, and I, to be honest, I don't think it was just the frustration for me. I'm sure many of my GPs were very frustrated with the whole thing of you know you could see, and I could, I could empathise, and they were trying hard to find a solution or find a better management for me. Um, the hard part was that process of whether you're looking for an answer or a, a way of being pigeonholed, and it wasn't going to happen and coming to the decision, whether it was mutually, should I try anything more or just let it go? Cause there were too many, it wasn't clean cut for me. Um, and they weren't sure. And it wasn't until I saw um, a special, it was a couple of specialists and one was through um, arthritis rheumatology. Um, and he came to a better solution overall of not giving anything a name. And it actually put me at ease the fact that basically with what I was going through my body, it was a case of you're not clean cutting arthritis or this or fibromyalgia or, or there was numerous things that I fitted into, but wasn't totally a clean cut. And he said, basically, if you can think of it like this, and it was actually confirmed from a specialist at St Vincent's as well, said, when you exercise or when you do certain things, the light doesn't turn off. So your muscles are switched on, and with the central nervous system, the light doesn't go off.
4: So I might check with you, Sky. People come
2: to a physio expecting
4: a physical explanation, a physical answer, um, a physical solution. How do you work with that? How do you manage that expectation and that pressure, probably?
3: Yeah, we, I mean, we certainly, we certainly see that, and I, I think that's a very reasonable, kind of understandable, um, expectation to come to physiotherapy with, you know, it's it's the way we're brought up, Um, it's the way we're moulded by our medical professionals as well and our interactions with them, you know, you you experience a sprained ankle and it makes sense that you, um, you know, you find out exactly what's wrong so that you can rest for a period of time, recover and um, slowly upgrade your activity to get back to normal. and you know, we often hear in our pain department that um, patients have sort of been going around in a, that cycle that you described, Vicky, of um, you know, seeing health professionals having more investigations ordered, trying um, various medications, but all to, to no avail. Um, so, I mean, I think in many ways I'm really lucky um, as a physio in a pain department because often, you know, there is an expectation that, that the approach will be slightly different. Um, um, so, but I, we still do spend a lot, of, a lot of education on that and that um, usually touches on why, why persistent pain is different from acute pain um, and how it's different in terms of what's happening in the body and Toby's started to talk about that when he... Um, Gave, gave a beautiful definition of persistent pain. So that's usually where we will begin um, and go from there, you know, to, to be able to say that, you know, there are things happening in the nervous system um, that can explain the persistence of pain, not just a very specific um, pathology or, or um, piece of anatomy that's involved. So staying with you, what do you think is at the heart of the psychoeducation that you're needing to give people around their pain? Um, as a um, physiotherapist, um, you know I, I think I'm in a great position to be able to talk about what's happening in the body. Um, so, as I mentioned before, lots of lots of education about what's happening in terms of the nervous system. Um, getting patients to be able to identify what sorts of factors might um, wind up their nervous system, and some people are very good at that, um, and um, and being able to sort of coax. Um, those responses from people through more education, um, and therefore being able to recognise what what factors desensitise um, nervous system, and trying to tie that into what strategies will be really um, useful to use um, as a long term method of managing pain. Um, and I think you you know you touched on um, where well you described I think pacing really beautifully. So you're working out um, exactly what what sort of Tolerance of activities you need to be able to do um, mm. to be able to kind of manage remaining relatively active throughout the day. That, that that's one of the things we certainly work on as well. For it, yeah.
2: And if I can add, as a, as a, I think one of the benefits is you start to weigh up as time progresses or you learn through with a good team that supports you. I learn, like, for example, I've got a great event to do with my work and business on the weekend. So it's quite a build up, but then it's such an exciting, fun event that I'll be involved in. Then I'll make sure for the next three days afterwards, I'm not gonna do anything like it um, because it'll take me a little while to come down. So I actually plan for it. So then I look forward to certain things whether through work. Um, and so I schedule my weeks or months depending on what's on and then make sure it's an enjoyable work environment. So I'll, I'll purposely take on certain work tasks that will give me a lot of joy rather than it just being work. Some of them are charity as well. So it gives you that sense of feel good to be able to give back and it's not just about me all the time. And that that's a good... For me, I learnt to do... To, that, to do that side of things. Mm-hmm. And having, yeah. I think Toby will endorse the, the whole concept of focusing
1: on what a patient particularly or person will want to do and then use the physical aspects to modify what it is. I mean, for instance, chap comes in and what does he want to do once we get rid of the pain? Well, we don't get rid of it, but anyway, that's what he wants because he wants to play golf. Now, he may want to play 18 holes, but perhaps he's really only capable of nine and the 19th and therefore we organise some sort of a cart or something, because he, he, he wants to keep, you know, his friendships with, with his mates that he plays golf with, but right now he can't do that. And so you're absolutely right, being able to focus on what it is you may or may not want to do. But one thing I've noticed, um, and I'm sure you'll endorse this, when people have persistent chronic pain, they give up all the fun things. They don't go out with their friends for coffee because they don't want to nag them with all their pain issues. They have to get the beds done and the, maybe the preparation of cooking done for the dinner for the family, et cetera. So they give up all the nice things to do all the jobs and then they flop back onto the couch or, you know, onto the bed. And, and that's really sad. And people don't realize that they're in fact cutting themselves short on the fun things which you've actually recognised as being the thing to focus on because that really gets you out of bed and gets you going.
0: So much in all of that. I want to pick up on something you said earlier which I think is is a sort of important part of this psychoeducation, just thinking about helping helping folks make the transition from an acute to a chronic state and how to facilitate that. Is the Shifiki that you're talking about now where you're clearly taking charge of your pain management. It's something that you're, you're the boss of and you're making the decisions about and you have responsibility for. But early in the piece, I think when it's an acute problem, and it'd be interesting whether this happened to you, a lot of people naturally, they, they, they take their problem to the health professional for the health professional to resolve for them, rightly so. And, and you do that repeatedly and you do it over and over and you go here and you go there and you try this and you try that. And through that process, I think sometimes we miss as health professionals, because remember we're talking about a three month period, so that journey starting where you start with the first scans and then wait for the result and then you see the specialist and wait for that and then you see others. But three months goes very quickly through that, that process that the the delivery of the message that this is now something which unfortunately we are not great at resolving, but you can do a lot for yourself in terms of managing it, that often gets gets well not so much missed as. It comes after a long period of time where the frustration is built and the disappointment is built, and then it becomes um, not not an easy message. or um, well, it's a hard message to take on board. I think it's a tough message anyway. But it sounds like, from what you're saying, that you're very clear about this is this is kind of your problem, and you now are going to be the one who best deals with it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would ask you, what what, what point did that? Was it said to you or did it dawn on you or where did that come about? You thought, actually, these guys aren't going to solve this for me. I've got, to, I've got to get in the driving seat myself.
2: Um, I think it was a combination of things. And because I also, I had a family history and upbringing that was, I had quite a few factors that contributed, not just my injuries. And I think I ended up going to St George Pain Clinic um, for their course to get an idea of what was um, involved. I also had a very good psychologist who specialised in relationships and, and pain um, out that way. And I, um, through that part of education, and then also I was being treated by a um, a Great, you know, it was sports and various areas because I had so many other injuries too, and they weren't sure whether it was that as well. Um, and then realised it was a couple of physicians, and they actually they actually said, and it, and take this the right way, they actually said, and I realised then this isn't one sided them trying to find it, you know, you trying to find a solution because. One specialist said, and it was after a couple of years of ongoing treatment because it was PE, I was a teacher. So um, I was getting help along the way to maintain my career to start with. Um, So, and they actually said, we really don't know. What do you want to do? And it was was a collaborative, that's what I mean, I don't want to sound negative or anything. It was actually really good to hear that, that this, it was actually, sorry, a bit emotional but it was actually really good that I wasn't imagining it. I didn't know. Um,
4: just checking perhaps with, with you maybe, Toby, around the mental health correlates with chronic pain. What do we know about the connections and maybe some overlaps? Mm. When, when can it look the same? Or
0: mm. Well, um, I mean, from, you know, Vicky's just given us the, the kind of rationale. There are, there are obviously, if you live with pain day in, day out, which doesn 't have any end to it, as far as you can see, that medications and treatments and things aren 't getting rid of it, maybe cause side effects, family issues. I think but only your point about that people drop off the fun stuff and keep doing the bad stuff is partly driven often by a sense of shame that they feel bad for having their pain problem, and so they, they it's kind of, they 're not allowed to go and have fun they 've just got to keep doing the drudgery stuff because they feel feel guilty for having it in the first place so there's So, for all those reasons, yes, there are lots of um, uh, mental health uh, repercussions for chronic pain. The general sort of data looks at about 50% of people with persistent pain will have some sort of depressive disorder at the same time, Uh, but there's, uh, you know, there's associations with, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorder, sleep disturbance, substance abuse... Um, Lots of, lots of consequences of living with something every day, which is, which is um, very, very difficult to do. And adding to that difficulty is that um, sometimes a presentation, a chronic pain presentation, can look very much like, um, a, 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 for example, a, a depressive illness. So somebody with chronic pain who says that they feel tired all the time, their concentration's really poor, their memory's no good, they're sleeping really badly, they feel slowed down, sort of psychomotor retarded. Uh, they put on weight. You know, all of that looks like a depressive problem, and in fact, all of it can be related to pain or, or treatments related to pain. So their, their mood actually may be reasonably stable, but if you just look at, say, a questionnaire response, or so just look at a score on a on a self-report questionnaire, that person may well come up as as significantly depressed, um, which is. Uh, you know, a, a, a sort of plea for us not to not to kind of grab a number on a questionnaire and think it's it's you know it's an MRI scan because it's not. Um, so so yes, there are lots of overlaps, and the data is very clear that it's it's a bidirectional thing. So your of course your pain will affect your emotional state, and your emotional state will affect your pain. And often what we what what. We do as, as health professionals is try and help folks intervene in that cycle where we can. So both from a from a, um, a pain reduction perspective if we can, but, but also from a mood management perspective, um, so that it's not not you know, necessarily one just causing the other, but these are two interactive reciprocal factors. And they can they can both make each other worse, and equally they can make, both make each other better. When you feel better in yourself and more confident, and so on, the pain doesn't go away, but it does often. I hope you so feel it's easier to manage.
4: Mm. Yep. And Sky, I might connecting with what Vicky was saying before about one day being told, "We don't know what to do. Tell us what you think we should do." Um, how can you guide people? to To do that, to self manage, like what are the skills and tools we need to teach them in order to be able to take ownership of
3: managing their pain? Yeah, I think that's that's a fabulous question because we we do regularly um, work. I do regularly work with patients who are mostly using, I guess, what we would term as passive pain management strategies, so things like. Medication, hot packs, um, injections—those sorts of strategies, where uh, the sense of control is um, external to the person with pain. Um, The sense of control lies with the object or person who applies the um, the treatment. Um, And and generally, the patients that I meet who are using only those sorts of strategies are generally not doing very well. um, That they don't have a great sense of control over their pain. In fact, they would. Probably say that their pain controls them. So, you know, part of the shift that that we're trying to make is towards more active um, pain management strategies. And I think that aligns, or has to align, with education around what's happening in the body. Because if you're still making that association between pain and potential damage in the body, then um, you're going to going to still um, align the treatment that that you apply to a biomedical model. Um, so yes, we're, we're, we're trying to shift towards those more active strategies, which is you know, increasing activity, um, being able to recognise stress and tension within the body and use strategies like um, relaxation, stretching, um, gentle activity, paced activity, um, those sorts of things. Our
4: first question from the audience tonight For GPs working in rural areas, it can be very difficult to access a pain clinic or a pain specialist or even a physio or a psychotherapist, and that means pain often ends up being managed by a prescription. Do you have any ideas on how to get around this?
1: Um, Yes, I I acknowledge that this is a great deal of difficulty, and especially out in the country, a colleague of mine, Ian Thong, actually did his fellowship also as a GP, did a fellowship in pain medicine, um, and found himself sort of stretched between a very, well, stretched very thin in an area around Dubbo Orange. The problem, of course, is that, as you say, as you recognise, getting a good physio, getting a psychologist, but it can be organised in such a way that you might have a friendly physio who has an interest in in getting people functioning, because I think that's what physios do. And as far as the psychology is concerned, I think a lot of GPs, if they'd be able to find the time even just sitting and listening to the patient's story is sometimes of greater value than anything you can do on a prescription pad because a lot of the time patients in or with chronic pain don't get the chance to actually voice their their angst and just being quiet sometimes is more helpful than trying to write a prescription and get them out the door.
0: There are, I would just say, too, that there, there are an increasing number of online That's right, information, information sources now for chronic pain, mm. quality, evidence-based, um, actual full programs done online. There's a lot of the ACI network yes. has a lot of really good information on it. There are books, self-management books and so on. So I think we've, we're getting some bibliotherapy, getting some some materials together that if you, you know, we we're all pushed for time, but being able to say to the patient, look, what, I'd, what I suggest you do is go and have a look at this stuff, and then come back and tell me next time what, what sense you've made of it, um, because there are there, there are and you know, either free or very low cost um, pain management programs online that that um, the evidence is is very strong of their efficacy. So just adding, if you're making notes about that, Pain Australia website, Chronic Pain Australia website, and Australian Pain Management Association have. Reams of resources, links and resources, and handouts and fact sheets and videos, and um, it's, it's it, they've done wonderful jobs in, in putting together these resources for very much this reason that it's yeah, these specialist clinics there's a few not enough to go around, but all of this does require, of course, a patient, an individual who's who's self agency, you know, they're going to look this stuff up and read it and. Think about it and come and talk to you about it. So it's, I don't, I'm not suggesting this is sort of an end in itself, but but to to start some 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 of the processes we we're talking about earlier on about being responsible for your own pain management, it's it's a good place to start.
1: ACI stands for Agency for Clinical Innovation, and and the videos that I usually use for patients, and I can sit with them because it's two or three minutes. Brain Man. So if you just Google up Brain Man, or just go ACI, you'll actually see some really good. Quick graphics on
2: what pain really is and all the facets to it, and that's helpful. As time progressed in the first, um, I suppose, five to ten years, your level of confidence and self esteem really plummets as well um, because you're just not, you're losing a lot of your skills or you're just not practicing the same thing, so you start to lose that confidence. And I think one of the things, and through my GP and one of the local physios, it was also just getting back into contact to find what activities were low-paced, but I could join in a community activity, and just doing that as well without even talking about, so building some of those skills in a rural area, because it's hard to get back into something because everyone knows you as well. Um, So you can't hide in a rural town. So sometimes you can't go back into your same activities. But they had some good ideas on other activities, community things in the area as well. And that was really helpful for me as as a person living outside of town.
4: Another question from our audience. As a psychologist... I sometimes have clients who seem to need to express the severity of their pain more strongly when being asked to consider managing it differently or taking ownership of their pain. How do you deal with this in your practice?
0: So somebody who, a, a, a patient who um, is going to some lengths to communicate to you how how much they're suffering, uh, and often that's in in what we call pain behaviour, so the demonstration of grimacing or groaning or rubbing or sighing or um, those non-verbal communicators, but as well as perhaps verbally talking about a lot, is is um, somebody who, who at that point is not looking to, now I want to minimise this and I want to maximise other things in my life. They're very much in that state of, of needing to explain that to you. My, my take on that is that that's... that's there's, there's probably a number of reasons for that being the case, but, but no doubt one of them, one of those factors is because up to that point, because theirs is a problem that you can't verify on x-ray blood test, and so on, that they haven't been well validated either by the health professionals or family members or work colleagues or whoever. And I sometimes feel to myself that, OK, I'm kind of the recipient of other people's crappy health um, and But that's OK. That's my job is to is to provide that person as best I can with that validation, with that that um, acceptance of them presenting as they are as a truth, and that my job is not at all to and, and this is, you know, you can understand this is from a clinical psychologist, my job is not to see whether it's in your head. And I will say that to people sometimes. It's not that's not what this is about. Um, so so one one aspect of that I think is that is that we as health professionals need to maybe take some collective responsibility in some ways for those presentations and, and maybe work doubly hard to, um, to convey to that to that individual that they are believed 100%. However, that doesn't then mean that there's nothing that can be done to help them manage it better. They're two different things. Um, and that, that's, that's not an easy negotiation. And sometimes it takes, does take some time. And um, I think partly as health professionals, you know, we all want to get results and help people and move things on. And, and we sometimes feel a bit of a pressure to be doing something. Um, but as, we'll, you know, as we know, that you, you, can't, you can't get somebody moving until they're ready to move. And if what they need to do is to convey to you how tough it is to be them, then that's what we've got to do to listen to that. But but I do think it's possible to listen to that without necessarily um, uh, endorsing an idea that, that, that change is not possible.
4: And the next question from our audience. When people begin their journey with pain, they're often going to multiple tests and specialists, so it can take several months for them to be investigated. Are we waiting too long referring to pain clinics once it's six or 12 months down the track? should we be making those referrals earlier?
3: To, to be able to work with someone who, who sort of classifies, I suppose, as having subacute pain is, is a bit of a dream of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I think six months is, is a reasonable time timeframe. Um,
0: Beyond that though, I, I, I don't see any harm with, as you know, it's looking around the sort of three month mark and this person is still not saying that, you know, they're really not getting any better and, and no one's putting their finger on, okay, well, it looks very much like this. It's still while we... Let's have a look at something else. I don't know. That to... For... For the, the... I guess the GP is a starting point to be having a conversation about... Irrespective of where this lands, this is three months is a long time. And we talk about, you know, pain going for years and years and years and I used to work in a pain program in the UK where the average time that people had pain before they got into the program was nine and a half years. That's before they started the pain management program. So, like, the time frames are, are crazy. But, but three months is still a long time. It's a long time of pain every day that you're doing your best and everyone's doing their best to try and resolve and it's not resolving. So three months for, for the GP or somebody to be starting a conversation about wherever this ends up, you're probably going to need to take some charge over this now and that... I'd be suggesting you start looking at some of these things. We don't necessarily need to put the label on it just yet, but you're not gonna get you know, much better by waiting on the couch for the doctor to come and say, you know, get to, to sort of put those ideas about, um, this looks like it's becoming more longer term. So let's think about long term. Um, and, and yes, it's important we keep maybe looking at wherever the investigative journey's going, but at the same time, how about you ever think about some of the goals that you maybe have forsaken? Let's, let's think about how we might get onto to some of those coming back in, in some way or form. Because it's too much, isn't it? It's too black and white. It's too either you're, you know, you're acutely unwell and everyone's going to fix you and you lie around waiting for that to happen. Or suddenly it's active pain management and off your butt and not get going. And that, that, it shouldn't be that that clunky. It should be a, a much smoother... Transition, as in lots of other chronic illnesses, where where folks are given to understand, okay, well, we can do something to help you manage this, but you're really going to need to take some responsibility too, and that that is just the way it is for this thing, um, rather than suddenly, okay, it hasn't worked. Now it's your job to do something about it, and that's 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 a tough message to hear.
3: I think in an ideal world. Um, that sort of push towards more active pain management would happen in primary care settings like physiotherapy and attending the GP. Um, and, and I think it certainly does in, in some circumstances, but, but just not consistently. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, there, there's so many resources that, that primary care um, health practitioners can access and can be um, providing to patients. Um, we should be doing that sooner rather than later.
4: The next question from our audience, the wait list for publicly funded pain clinics can be very long. What can we do to help people while they're waiting to access these services? Is it mainly looking at some of the resources you mentioned earlier?
0: Well, using these as yeah. well, so my take, you guys have views too, but my take is using these to start a conversation. So so to not, okay, go and read, but so what did you think of that when you had a look at these things? What was your take on it? Because I think somebody talked earlier on about about the sort of engagement of this, is that to be and Vicky's really given us a good insight into into how important it is that that the person themselves engages with with what's being asked of them to do. So these are all these are all great resources, but I would see them as whilst that that um, you know the referral is is waiting or you're on a waiting list for somewhere to 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 help help this person orientate themselves to this often quite new way of thinking about it. I mean it's it's it is pretty different. To, to the normal course of events and having a chance to talk that through with you and get your feedback and and backwards and forwards um, I think actually you can do quite a lot in that discussion and it, it's a bit like it's, an, it's a no pressure discussion because they're just they're waiting but in fact you may be you may be doing quite a lot therapeutically um, so that they're moving towards the goal anyway
3: I think one of the things we're working on in our pain clinic is um, a step to care model so be able to sort of um, provide a whole bunch of different options to patients from reading books to accessing some of these online pain programs to coming to various intensity pain um, pain programs brief, moderate um, more intense um, and you know, we actually give patients a form and get and get them to sort of tell us what they, what would be their preference, rate right at 0, 1, 2, 0, no, nope, not at all interested, 2, really interested. And, um, it's, you know, it's been really interesting to get that feedback from patients and what's, what you know, to see what they're most interested in. But... What, what we have found is that when patients are given more choice and more autonomy over the treatment um, available to them, they are more likely to, um, to engage well. So for me, I think, and other
2: friends where we've joined up with group who have chronic pain, um, we've talked a lot about different things. And one of the things was reinventing yourself in a lot of ways. It wasn't about the pain. It was about reinventing myself as well which can be end up being quite empowering if you get that get the right support and have a team so I had a I had a physio team um, that at one point um, because of the various nerve pain that I had and the injuries I had as well as not knowing what else was going on they gave me a list of things and we'd actually sit down and come up with creative ways because if I'm in a farmhouse and I've got this happening for a couple of days I really didn't want to go and no appointments available or I do want to spend three hours getting into town and back. Um, so we came up with a whole lot of different things I could use in the house and in one house we found that the door handle in the bathroom was the perfect size for a nerve spot I always got in between my shoulder blades and other blades. So we used to have actually a bit of a laugh.
4: Another question from the audience. What do the panel think are some of the needs of people with pain that are not being met?
1: I think education, I think first and foremost, we have to be able to educate our patients about what's going on and, and encourage them to become, you know, self-managers, if you will. Um, I think that's really important and I think it can be started from the very beginning because a lot of patients have been walking around and wondering, how come nobody can find what's wrong with my pain? Well, you know what, we now know and we can impart that knowledge. It's just a matter of sitting down having the time, which is the other problem. As a GP, as you all know, um, time is limited. And so unless you're willing to treat your pain patients like a a, a person with diabetes, you're not going to get very far.
3: Yeah, One of the ways we've tried to get around some of those long waiting lists is to run regular education sessions. So we just started this year and we've had Two already, and we've got another one in June. But um, patients, for patients, so when they are referred to um, to the pain department, the um, response is to give them their appointment for their um, pain their pain appointment, which might be in three months' time, but to also give them information about the education session, which is you know generally pretty soon. So it just kind of gets people started. Mm-hmm. Um, and so often then before they've even had their appointment with their specialist, we've got information about their preference for learning um, and managing their problem, which is really useful.
0: Slightly tangentially, I think what they need is, is less stigma about having the problem. So I see lots of folks who um, would feel really self-conscious about being at work and pacing themselves during a meeting. You know, everyone sits down, for them to stand up periodically through a meeting, would be so socially inappropriate that they would find that so awkward and draw attention to themselves and so on that they wouldn't do it. Or that they, you know, talking to family, some family function, that they'll be self-conscious about going because everyone's going to say, oh, how's your back? And they don't have the conversation because the sense the whole time is that, you know, that it's people thinking of them pejoratively. So so part of, you know, doing something like this tonight and 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 all the the way that we can get chronic pain into into the public discourse is to... So want to address this thing about stigma, is that it's, it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of, but it is something that needs to be managed. And the more people can bring that out into the open and, and, and there are role models of people who do have pain and manage it very well, um, I think that's, that, that would address a number of concerns.
4: And Toby, just um, while, while Alex walks over, staying with stigma, a lot of people find themselves on a lot of medication. Mm-hmm. And stigmatized around that as well. Can you speak a little bit around that as yeah. well on opiates and other? Well, it is. Kinds it's a it's big
0: issue at the moment, isn't it? And mm. um, you know, our, our, our the folks that we see with pain who are taking opioid medications also read newspapers and listen to television and see, you know, the opioid epidemic and and all the the. the um, sort of literature coming over about, about the pendulum swing from pain is being undertreated and we need to give people better treatment to now we're overtreating it and we've got to get people off these terrible medications. Um, so I think there is a, yeah, there's kind of a double stigma for these people, their, their condition and now the, the, the medication they've been given to help manage their problem is, is doubly stigmatising. Tricky issue. Lots. I guess we could be here all night on that one too. But um, I suppose one of the messages there I would uh, hope is that that we don't convey to, to to patients in this case that that you know their, their medication is going to be withdrawn, taken away from them. The tap's going to be turned off um, because that's terribly anxiety provoking. If you're if you're taking medication like that and feel that that you need to do that in order to function at some level. Um, it needs to be absolutely a conversation and a negotiation and a, a, a plan. And typically, the idea that's put to folks is, you know, that, that weaning down on a medication involves weaning up on other strategies, not not just taking away something from you, but giving you other ways to cope at a level that, that means that the medication becomes less less important. Um, but again, that's a that's a carefully constructed conversation.
4: And um, I, know, I know we have a question at the back, but I'm going to just stay on this topic of medication for one second. Milano, is there a place for medication in chronic pain management?
1: Does it have a role? Well, I think the most important thing that should be done at the very you know, onset of any kind of program of rehabilitation that may require some analgesia, that some sort of contractual ar- arrangement is made with the patient and, and the prescriber to limit the time and monitor closely. I think it's just been unfortunately a little bit too easy to just keep writing, keep escalating and and we've got patients walking around with with huge amounts of of opioids and you wonder how they function. Um, They've of course become tolerant and that's going to be a real problem um, if they suddenly stop and it's going to be a real problem to get them off. And so I think there needs to be this negotiation of when and if you do give any kind of serious analgesia that they have to also understand that it's, pa- it's going to be for a very short time for a, for a particular focus or purpose. How do you work with patients who are on opioids? Uh, you
3: in what way? Or without, say,
1: so let's say, let's without opioids, who are in chronic pain, do you ever recommend that they go and get some sort of analgesia more than a Panadol that they can buy over the counter?
3: No, I don't. Um, or a bit of anti-inflammatory? Yeah, nope. no, 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 <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <I> don't. No, <laughs> but I, th- I think Toby, you know, brought up a great point in that, you know, when we are, I actually saw a lady today who wanted to talk to me about. Um, her medications, because one of her doctors had sort of made a flyaway comment about reducing her opioid intake, and of course she was, you know, yeah. she was um, understandably quite upset about it. So I had exactly that conversation yeah. with her that, you know, now is not the time. You know, she, she had um, she had just just then described to me a flare up that she'd had two days previous, and you know, it was really obvious that her methods for for managing in a situation like that were, you know, really. Yes. Really quite passive, so we want to try and upskill her mm-hmm. in other other areas, and then think about medication. But that's um, just addiction. come back to the
0: point that was made earlier on that you could envisage that scenario. So, so doctor of some kind has made a throwaway comment about, well, we should get you off these medications mm-hmm. at some point. And the patient's <gasps> Yeah, panic. Panic. So that's not going to make her pain experience any better. But mm-hmm. to the point earlier on about what does she need to do? She's got to convey how bad it is. So they don't take these medications from her, So the next time you see her, the, she will be worse. and that 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 is a perfectly logical response to me. Um, it's It's what you do. You can't show somebody your blood test, you've got to show them how bad it is. So it's sort of itrogenic in a way, you know we, we've sort of created that. And so it, it, again, you know we've got to be really careful with with our language, careful with with the sensitivities that people have, um, Not say so they can't be managed, but i'm I'm sure that scenario has played out more than once.
3: And I, I think one of the reasons I don't feel like I need to talk to patients about medication is that I've got no option to prescribe any medication. Um, but also because I feel like I've got lots of other ways of working with patients other than other than medication. Um, yeah, so there's, there's, I don't feel disempowered you know, um,
2: in that way. So I do I do take medication because also with my well, it's also my injuries, but. I find it hard to exercise because a lot of my injuries are involved with um, my thoracic as well because I had back fractures. Um, So for breathing for me to exercise or even try and increase my pace of walking, I get quite bad um, pain, intercostal pain, and then I can't get my breath. So my ribs, I don't, my lung capacity doesn't expand. Um, So that's a problem. So I do, if I want to exercise or do certain things, I will take something that's not going to interfere with long-term to help manage so that I can at least exercise or join in. or uh, What is it? And also, if I'm having a flare-up and I know if I get to the third, fourth day, it can be quite chronic to the point I'm not mobile. So I do do something to... I I take what they've given me to help break that cycle so at least I can get a good night's sleep. But that... uh, I, that wouldn't happen very often either.
3: Medication's a balance, isn't it? So, yeah. you know, really the aim of pain medications is not just to reduce pain, it's to increase function. And if the side effects from high-dose opioids are so bad that you can't function, then, you know, where's the trade-off? So that's, you know, that's how often how I put medication to patients. Um, and, and usually that explanation is reasonably well-received. Um, and, yeah, most of the patients I see are... Are taking medications that help them to kind of be, be more functional and engage in the lives that they they want to live. The final
4: question from our audience tonight, distraction and body awareness seem to be strategies that are used for chronic pain. How do we meld these two together?
3: So I guess when I was talking about um, awareness as to what's happening in the body in a persistent pain um, situation. What I really meant was kind of understanding what's happening in the nervous system, um, that we know that there's not necessarily that correlation between um, pain and, um, and a, an absolute kind of pathology or, or anatomy-based problem, that usually when pain is persisting that there's some kind of heightened activity in the nervous system. Um, but I think, yeah, the... The other thing to think about is a lot, lots of patients that I work with use distraction and find distraction a really helpful strategy. Um, but then there can be problems when attention is brought to pain. So the example that Vicky used of encounters with um, her health professionals Or family members or friends who might ask about pain then having to attend to pain and evaluate what's happening in in the body might then um, increase pain because of that attention. So one of the other strategies that um, that we use um, particularly one of the psychologists that I I work with is um, desensitization. So um, being able to to say that, yep, yes, I'm, there, I'm experiencing pain. Um, I have sensations of pain in my body, but that doesn't necessarily correlate with any harm being done. Um, it's just activity in my nerves. Um, there's potentially no need for me to respond, and getting patients to use those sorts of scripts or similar scripts that they might, um, they might come up with themselves to use to desensitise or habituate to, to pain. I don't
0: know if you have any... um... Yeah, I think it's a really good question, actually, a really really thoughtful question. And my take is that to to some extent it's a semantic question in that what what we're encouraging, and I think, Vicky, you've explained is what helps you is to keep busy, to be engaged with meaningful activity, to have focus and direction and things which require your mind to be um, grappling with something that has distracting properties but is different to distraction as a way of, I can't bear this pain, I must take my mind off it. I need, to, I need to escape from pain. And that escaping from pain strategy is not particularly helpful because you can't. And so you might escape it for a bit by taking some medication or you might escape it for a bit by forcing yourself to think about something else, but of course you'll come back to it. So, so um, I think the, the distinction is that absolutely keeping busy and having a life is very therapeutic for pain, um, but, but trying to distract oneself in order to escape pain um, may well inadvertently reinforce the danger signal and the importance that your mind gives to pain. So as I was saying, the desensitizing approach is about trying to de- de-emphasize the importance of that information that your brain's attending to, at the same time as encouraging people to, to keep busy whilst pacing themselves, of course. So it's a multiple balancing act.
2: And, and my house can look like a bomb went off because one room will be a paperwork because I might, if I've got a whatever day that pain levels are escalated, I'll do 15 or half an hour on something to do with paperwork, but then I'll have another job where I'm doing something more outdoors and get some changing my body positions. And so you've got to get... And as a mum and that constant... You know, the house has to be constantly tidy and all this. you just got to learn to That's put that aside, close the door. Very good point.
0: Very good point. The That's
2: expectations no. on how you
0: present. Yeah. And that oh. thing about engaging your family in that, because if you're leaving, not leaving things, but you're pacing yourself so that you're not pushing yourself to get it all done, doesn't mean that things are, you know, not always finished when you start them. And everyone needs to understand that, otherwise... There can be problems.
1: In my family, I'm uh, married to a, an engineer, and I'm also a, a migraineur. And my husband has a very good method of getting rid of my migraine. He offers to drop a brick on my toe. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a distraction
0: doesn't happy, work.
4: <laughs> happy note for us to finish on a nice mental image, Milana, of things dropping on your toe, bricks. Um, Please join me in thanking our wonderful panel for this
3: fascinating conversation today.
0: Thank you for listening. If you want to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to Black Dog Institute on iTunes. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdog.org.au.